Thank you guys for that. I really appreciate it. I've been here the last couple of Wednesday nights and haven't heard them sing a lot, but uh, they're super to lead this. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. I want to introduce my wife, Lainey, right here, and uh, we're thrilled to be here and, and start off our journey together. Uh, before I get into the message today, I wanted to share a little bit about my family and uh, other things. All right. When Lainey and I got married a little over 21 years ago, I had Jordan and Lindsay. Lainey had, whoops, where are you? There we go, Katie and Megan. Now, both of these are 36, she's 32, Jordan's, I mean, she's 34, Jordan's 32. This is Rachel and their daughter, Jane. This is Kyle, goes with Katie, and Harper and Ford. And this is Megan and Siani. And this is Joseph with, with Lindsay, with Harrison and Graham. Let's give them a hand. <laughs> Actually, I want the hand for kind of getting through all that, because, but I knew I had someone to correct me. Pardon me? Oh, pardon me? Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. Um, Megan's husband, Joel, is not in the picture. We also have another little girl, Bryn, coming in May. So that's the story. <laughs> it's great to share family and get acquainted with you guys. I've been asked by at least half a dozen people what to call me. Reverend, doctor, Reverend doctor, Terry. I prefer Terry. Now, I've had the titles, and occasionally back in the day they were used. But when I was pastoring in Mississippi, they called me Brother Terry. That's off limits. Once... <laughs> Once I uh, got this far north, which is not super north, uh, I put that one off limits. <laughs> I had a friend who um, got his doctor of ministry alongside me, and uh, one of his little uh, boys, eight-year-old, brought a friend over one day, and he overheard them talking, and he told the gentleman's eight-year-old, I hear your, daughter, your father is a doctor. He said, yeah, but he's not the kind that can do you any good. And having been in healthcare for years and in tech, uh, I made it a point not to use the term doctor because they might think I wasn't one of those. I was one of those that could do you some good. Uh, the night that Chrissy called me and told me about the church's decision to invite us to come and serve, I looked at Laney and said, "Remember this moment. I will never be more popular than I am, or or more liked than I am right now." She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I haven't preached yet, and I haven't ticked anybody off yet. So, for what it's worth, I was very likable that night. We'll see how the rest of it goes. One question that I get frequently uh, is, why did I move out of, the business, uh, out of the ministry into the business arena? And I wanted to answer that one up front tonight. As I was uh, in the journey of my ministry, and uh, had started a church in Jackson, Mississippi, and we started in a movie theater. We'd show up at midnight on Saturday and set up the staging and the lights, and we'd do everything on Sunday, and they're out of there by 11. But we had that up and going for about a year, and for the past, for about three years prior to that, and at, during that time as well, I had some friends who were in the long-term care rehab business, physical therapy, speech, and occupational therapy. And uh, they asked me to start doing some leadership training and some staff, tra staff training and conflict resolutions. They were bought by a large national company, 
and I got asked to do more and more of that. And my church was very supportive of that, but it's, it came to a point where I really felt like the business arena was where I was moving toward ministry. Uh, I was always fascinated by the complexities of business, but I wanted to also, if I went into business, I wanted it to be something that was helping people. And so healthcare is where I landed, and I had been there many, many years until about this time last year. Now, in the interim, I had spoken on occasion. I'd filled in for Brian at our church in Louisville, and so I'd kept my, my foot in the water, but uh, never had taken on a, a full ministry again. So it's been an exciting journey. Uh, it's been an opportunity for Lainey to see me in a little different light that she didn't know me when I was in the ministry previously. And so it's, it's one of those uh, opportunities that God had kind of put in front of us, and uh, we're very, very grateful. Uh, some have asked me what my preaching style is. Well, you're seeing it a little bit right now. Uh, my, my messages are designed to be as personal and uh, to give you handles on life, on day-to-day -day living. I have about 25 minutes a week to connect with you and share something that might resonate with you. So you can walk out with at least one thing or two things that uh, can get you through the week and let you think about those things and kind of navigate life. I don't use sermons as an opportunity to go into deep Bible study and exegetical uh, analytics or any of that, though I think those have their place in, in deep studies and long-term things. But my purpose here on Sunday morning is to do what I just shared. Before I move on, I wanted to see if there's a question or two you'd like to ask before we move on in to the message this morning. Anything that I've not addressed you'd like to uh, ask about? All right. Well, let's move into Out of the Shadows. It was time for the 11 worship service to start in my church. And being a Southern Baptist, we baptized as frequently as we could. We didn't wait till one time a year. We would do it every Sunday if there was a candidate for that. And uh, with that particular Sunday, we were going to baptize at the very front of the service. And uh, then I would, we'd move on with, with the music and so forth. I went into the uh, changing room and put on my fisherman's waders. I, uh, as a kid, I couldn't figure out how these guys stayed so dry, but that was the secret. So I put on the fisherman's waders and robe and went into the baptistry and baptized the candidate. And I was, we moved out of the baptistry back into the dressing room. I could hear the music start to play. So I had, uh, I, I took, I, when I got into the waders, I rolled my leg, I pulled my pants legs up to the knee so they wouldn't get wrinkled and took my coat off and all. So when I was getting out of that, I took the robe off and the waders off and hustled back into the service so that uh, I could catch up right in the middle because I was going to do the invocation after. I'm sorry, I'm going uh, to use the hand. On my last Sunday, last week in Louisville, we had, the, for the first time in a year, my microphone started zapping and staticky and everything else. I accused one of the staff of having set that up, but I don't think they did. Now, Chad may be responsible for this this morning. But. So anyway, I, I had uh, got my jacket on, and I walked back around and came into the service, walked up onto the platform. And while I'm standing there with a hymnal in my hand, I realized I had not rolled my pants legs down. 
Now, nobody knew that I knew. So I was going to move up to pray, and I would move them down then. So sure enough, I walked up there to pray, and I said, please pray with me. If you had had an overhead camera at that time, you would have seen the uh, colleague of mine, associate minister, crawling across the platform. You would have seen the balcony, the uh, guy in the balcony doing the sound, hanging his leg over the balcony saying this, and then several in the choir were going, psst, psst. What's interesting about that is I pretended nothing had ever happened. I rolled them down and never mentioned it, never said anything. But you know, everybody saw what happened. Everybody knew. They knew what I knew, that I had had those up. And I don't know what it is that, that causes us to pretend nothing's wrong. Uh, we, we struggle in life, and life is full of, of journeys with challenges. It's full of um, difficult things, difficult experiences. Sometimes there's more darkness than light, it seems, as in the shadows with the sh shadows are where the truth hides. The date was September 7th, 1988, and Tori Merton had, had uh, rode solo across, almost across the Atlantic Ocean. 85 days alone at sea, 3,390 3, miles from her departure at Nags Head, North Carolina. During one of the storms that she encountered, her boat was tossed nine times end to end, and she found herself laying on the laying on the uh, bottom of the boat, the floor of the boat, and uh, feeling that she was helpless. Nothing could be done to support her. All the shadows that she felt felt like helplessness had her by the throat and was choking her. And so she lay there frustrated and concerned in those shadows. You know, all shadows aren't bad. Some are playful. I like to walk down the sidewalk with my grandkids and put out my arms and try, get them to try to jump in and out of my shadow. Or you do shadow puppets on the wall. And uh, those can be playful, but our life experiences have shadows that aren't necessarily playful. During these last couple of years with the pandemic, we've experienced death and loss and uncertain times. We've had election politics and ideological warfare. Our friends and family, we've been in conflict with some of those as, if never, as never before. The belief in our way of life and the way we live as a community and even in ourselves has been challenged. We're living under many shadows, but today we're going to look at three of them. The shadow of grief, the shadow of conflict, and the shadow of doubt. Tori Murden describes the grueling labor of rowing across the Atlantic, 1,800 strokes per hour, 12 hours a day, 80 days, one and a half million strokes of the oars. That grueling day after day experience is what we have when we're living in those shadows. You know, you're, we're in the life, our life and the, and the shadows can be grueling and never ending, day after day, mile by mile, stroke by stroke. One of the most challenging is the shadow of grief. The natural reaction to loss is grief. It manifests itself, manifests itself following various kinds of losses and is particularly profound upon the loss of a loved one. As reported on January 12th, 
there have been 843,165 deaths in the United States from COVID pandemic. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, friends, life partners. It's difficult to fully grasp the collective grief that we've experienced. And whether you've lost a special someone to COVID or at another time and under different circumstances, you know the shape of the shadow of grief. Perhaps some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, author of Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, and others. When he was, uh, he was both a professor at Oxford and at Cambridge, and he was a friend with J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, Lewis was a professed atheist, and it was Tolkien who challenged with intellectual arguments uh, the, the positions of Lewis and eventually led Lewis to commit his life to Jesus Christ. Well, he got married at the age of 58, and he married a woman named Joy Davidson. They were married only four years when she passed away. After Joy's death, he wrote a collection of reflections on grief. Some of his colleagues bought the book because he wrote it under a pseudonym. They bought the book and gave it to him, not knowing it was, he was the author. But he had a gift for capturing emotions and saying things in ways that, that really simplified the thoughts. Here's one of his revealing descriptions of grief. No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness. I keep on swallowing. Wow. Helplessness grips us by the throat. Well, we have those challenges in our grief, in our shadow of grief. In one of Jesus' most famous teachings, he addresses those who grieve. You know, he had, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, we hear him tell things that are different than what the people had heard before. He was on a hillside and evidently wanted to contrast what his perspective and his convictions were and what the truth is with the things that the people heard before. The first words he uttered in that sermon were a radical departure from anything that uh, anyone had ever heard before. He spoke of the kingdom of heaven belonging to those who, belonging to those who are without pedigree. That the people who would own the earth, the people who would inherit the earth, were the common people, were the ones who struggled. And then he said something very, very profound. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The comforting of the soul would be provided to those who mourn, those in the shadow of grief with no sign of light, mourning a great loss. Comfort comes in many forms. I don't know what your experience has been. Perhaps it's, a, it's an awareness of someone's uh, thoughts or, or habits that uh, you've experienced, and somehow that day it just seems very real that that person is still so close. Perhaps it's the words in a poem or a, a song or a hymn. Whatever it is, we find comfort at times. But God says, Jesus says, those who mourn will be comforted. There's a particular incident in the Bible that Jesus experienced this. Now, for all practical purposes, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were Jesus' best friends beyond the disciples. 
And during one of Jesus' teachings, he, teaching trips, he receives word that Lazarus is very sick. Now, surprisingly to the disciples, Jesus doesn't just leave right then and go anywhere. He continues to teach for a couple of days, and then they finally head home. And when they get there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Well, we pick up the story when Jesus arrives. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. There it is. The moment that Jesus felt what you and I feel. Jesus wept. Now, scholars have argued that, that why did he weep if he knew in a few minutes he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? I can't explain that, but I, re- I recognize that. I recognize that mourning, that, that sense of, of loss that drives us to tears. Well, Jesus wept for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus, and he wept with them, with Mary and Martha. In my role as minister, some people have have come to me at times when they're experiencing grief and said, you know, I know that I shouldn't feel this way because I know I'm going to see him or her in heaven one day and it'll all be fine. I know that. Well, the first thing I tell them is shouldn't shouldn't be used as a word in these cases. You feel how you feel. And to put should or shouldn't on it doesn't change anything. And so that's that, that sense of understanding that grief is something that, that we have and we hold, and uh, we need to remember that even Jesus wept. He promises to comfort those who mourn. He comforts those with helplessness that grabs us by the throat. Well, while the shadow of grief is most often triggered by an event or loss, there's a, a shadow that's not necessarily tied to an event. It's the shadow of conflict. Earlier I mentioned the incredible conflicts we've been through in recent, uh, recent years and days. Conflict isn't something new to us. We've had it all of our lives. We experience it in the shape of broken family relationships, shattered friendships, and a chaotic community. The shadow of conflict can, can penetrate even the smallest places and permeate the emotional air that we breathe. Well, there are stories of many family conflicts that are out there, and my family had their share of those when I was growing up. We used to go to my maternal grandparents at every holiday, and I remember being eight or nine in those seven to ten year ranges. Every time we went to the holiday to share with aunts and uncles and cousins, my mother and her sister got into a fight. Imagine that. It was out in the open, at the dinner table or wherever. And they argued and cried and fought till one would surrender and gather the family and get in the car and head home. Those are family conflicts that are, that are strange and, and they're telling about what's going on in that family. You may have stories of your own. Some have experienced recently the, the conflicts over COVID or politics and others that they'd never had within their families. Well, conflict in family relationships is the story of jokes. It's uh, the foundation of cliches, the familiar storyline in books and movies and television shows. From shows going back in time to like All in the Family to Dallas, where I grew up, 
and uh, also even today with The Crown on television. We watch those stories, I think, partly because we know we're not in those settings of life, in those positions of life, but we see the same kind of relational dynamics that we live day in and day out. And maybe it helps us think that we're not the only ones that feel that way. Well, friendships can be a battleground of conflict as well as families. There's that saying that friends are the family you choose. And while that's true, those family friendships or friendships that become family in so many ways are ripe for conflict. Occasional flickers of light are there, but the shadow of conflict is right there. Jesus had a lot to say about this kind of conflict, some difficult things to say. Next slide. Next slide. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, for all, I understand we have some teachers and retired teachers in the room. I'm going to move this back just a little bit. And um, for all of us, for all of our purposes, this, we cannot avoid the fact that this is a conditional sentence. You know what a conditional sentence is? It says, if this, then this. Even though the word then may not be used, as in this case. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heaven, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Well, that's a challenge. It's a hard thing to do when we experience God's love and forgiveness. We want to experience that love and forgiveness. But God compels us to look inward and to, to realize that there's no simple formula for resolving conflict. But we need to look inward and to God to help support us through that. You know, when, when Jesus gathered his disciples together for the last time, he focused on giving them encouragement and instruction. And more than once he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now Jesus even used the word commandment. There's no lack of clarity there. So we have the conditional sentence, the if-thens that challenge us, and then the commandment to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Well, when there's conflict with family and friends, there's really one question. If I love him or her the way Jesus loves him or her, what should I do? What should I do next? Well, that's a good starting point with a question. But there's those kinds of conflicts that are get complex and, and difficult to resolve and all kinds of dynamics going on. No one process is right, but whether it's conscious or not, it begins with loving others in Jesus Christ. There's a woman named Sharon McMahon who has a saying that, that I really love. She's a go-to person on, on, online for uh, government uh, uh, education and politics and others. She was a retired government teacher. Her approach to the polarized community is this. One of her most profound statements, listening to understand does not obligate you to agree. Think about that. I've been sucked into so many conversations and, and so many one-on-one -on -one discussions and, and in groups uh, 
where it was like we were pushing to get the other person to acknowledge and agree with us, or I, they were wanting me to do that. It felt that way. Wouldn't it be great if we were willing to just sit down and talk and know that you're not expected to agree with me and you're not expecting me to agree with you, but let's understand each other. Let's listen a little bit more. Listening to understand does not obligate you to agree. You know, this principle can be helpful in marriages and families and children and, and friends. So when you find yourself in conflict with others, begin to listen to understand. Now, grief and conflict cast, cast large shadows. But the toll they take can have long-lasting effects. They can actually trigger another shadow that undermines our resolve to keep rowing, to keep pressing toward the light. It's the shadow of doubt. Grief, conflict, and doubt. Doubt in the shape of a failed belief system, perhaps. Now, we can thank the Apostle Paul for, for talking about doubt in the terms of personal failures, failures of others, and then even in a failed belief system. In Romans chapter 7, Paul describes this frustration of, of doing things he doesn't want to do and not doing the things he wants to do. And he's struggling with that. And he said, who will free me from this body of death? In the first century Roman Empire, there was a punishment for the most egregious murderers. They would take the body of the dead person and tie it to the murderer. And they had to drag the body around while it decomposed. And eventually, of course, led to the death of that person. That was how they instituted the death penalty. Well, Paul cries out, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he said, the Lord Jesus Christ will deliver us. Paul's story illustrates a paradox of faith. It, it's somehow when we come to a place of recognizing our own weakness and our own struggles that we're able to live more effective lives in Christ Jesus. You know, it may be that the person you need to forgive and give grace and understanding to is yourself. Paul also struggled with the faith of others. Much of Paul's New Testament letters are written to churches and conflicts that are arising. In the first sentences of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he describes his disappointment. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. His frustrations, that there's conflict, that there's disagreement, that there's discord, and, and that the kingdom of God has no use for that. We cannot be effective. He then spends several pages instructing them more and encouraging them. You know, some approach life with skepticism, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but, but someone will say, you know, people are just going to disappoint you. Well, perhaps that's true in many ways. But I tend to be more optimistic. I tend to think that people want to be better, that we want to be better. We want to engage life more effectively. We can be optimistic even though the skeptic statement is true on occasion. But through the love of Jesus Christ, we can be optimistic about today and tomorrow. You know, doubt born of personal failures or, or failures of others can throw the boat off balance. 
but there remains a catalyst of doubt that complicates everything. It's the doubt from a failed belief system. Particular beliefs about God and faith and ultimate truth. These doubts arise when we experience things that don't fit with our belief system. They contradict it. There's one statement that I, don't want, I want to address this morning that, that illustrates this. Everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that statement. I can't find any place in Scripture where it says that. Now, it does say that for those that love God, God will work for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. But it didn't say everything happens for a reason. Tell that to a person whose husband was lost in a car accident or a child died of an illness. There's tragedy in the world. It's a broken world. The world cries out for wholeness. The world is fragmented physically in the creation that we experience. So it's not that everything happens for a reason. It's that when those things happen, God intervenes in Jesus Christ to minister and work with us in that. So I've known some people who had challenges that conflicted with that belief that they had. Everything happens for a reason. And then they face a serious tragedy and can't make sense of it. They don't make sense. We can't understand everything that happens in the world, but we know that it, it is going to happen. But it didn't happen for a reason. It just happened because it does. And how are you going to reach out to God? How are you going to let others worship, minister to you, and, and bring you into that experience? Well, let's look again at Paul and the failed belief system. You know, Paul had a, a super pedigree as a Jewish leader, as a Pharisee. He believed in the resurrection and, he, and believed that the resurrection would come when Messiah would come uh, to earth and uh, usher in the uh, military kingdom of God in Rome. You know, the, the thing that, that Paul didn't plan on was what he was going to see on the road to Damascus. You know, he was walking to Damascus in the mission of killing Christ followers. And he encounters this person on the road right there in front of him, and he recognizes that it's Jesus Christ. Now, here's a leading Pharisee who believed in resurrection, believed in Messiah, but he believed that Jesus was a fraud and a phony and had deserved to die as well as did anyone who followed Jesus Christ. But right there in front of him was something he could not reconcile with his beliefs. He had to accept that Jesus was raised from the dead, and therefore, Jesus was Messiah. That changed everything for Paul, and ultimately for us as well, as his ministry and his letters have been so dominant in our faith. I don't know your Damascus Road experience. I don't know what statement of faith no longer fits your life's circumstances. I don't know what relationship doesn't fit the rules that that you grew up with and believed all the time, and then all of a sudden there's something real here in this relationship, and it doesn't fit with the way you've structured your faith and belief. Don't be afraid of those times. You know, God has the ultimate truth, and the ultimate uh, destiny of the universe doesn't rest on us understanding all of those things. But with humility and courage, we can come to the ingredients for understanding. Doubts breed helplessness that grip and grasp us by the throat. 
Tori Murden lay on the floor of that boat, small cabin, in that grip of helplessness. She's, uh, she sent out a rescue signal, a distress signal, and she was rescued and taken into Philadelphia. Exactly one year later, from coming into Philadelphia, having been rescued at sea, Tori Murden struck out again aboard the American Pearl. One and a half million more strokes, more than 80 days again, more than 3,000 miles, she rode out of the shadows and on to the sunlit shores of terra firma. The journey is hard, but shadows in the shapes that they come seem like they'll linger forever. But I assure you that God is faithful. God loves you and me. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a victorious statement. You know, maybe it's grief or conflict or doubt that is the shape of your shadow. But I encourage you this morning, take up a row, an oar and row, out of the shadow that you're experiencing and into the light of Jesus Christ. Amen.